Welcome to Escape Routes with Condé Nast Traveller. My name is Melinda Stevens, the Editor-in-Chief of Condé Nast Traveller US and Condé Nast Traveller UK, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey, and at Condé Nast Traveller we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favourite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light, and that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Stanley Stewart and welcome to Condé Nast Traveller's Escape Routes. I will be reading for my piece on Antarctica, which featured in the Condé Nast Traveller's April 2020 issue. I hope you enjoy it. What it's like to visit Antarctica, Earth's last great wilderness. Apparently it's a common feeling, this lingering obsession. Looking back now on my time at the end of the world, I'm haunted by Antarctica. It feels unreal, dreamlike. Those ice lakes scattered with star points of light, the immense snow cliffs with their blue shadows, the gossamer sheen of silver across the ridges of the frozen ocean, the white abstract shapes. Nothing actually prepares you for this place. It is a continent of superlatives, the coldest, driest, highest, windiest space on the planet. But its beauty is what will break your heart. We had flown south from Cape Town, five and a half hours across the Southern Ocean, unaware of how intoxicating Antarctic would be. There was cloud at cover for much of the way, but after three hours, the sky cleared and I looked down on icebergs afloat on a sea of intense blue. We were at 35,000 feet. I suddenly realized the icebergs, which had been calved from the vast continent that lay in wait, were the size of counties. We landed on a frozen runway. Having dressed and kitted up in the plane, at minus 10 degrees Celsius, it was a modest four-layer day. We stepped out into that dry, rasping air, into that light so wonderful and so tangible, I felt I could gather it up in my hands. Bar some tents and Nissan huts that housed the airstrip support, it was a vast, empty world. Away to our right, the sculptural sweep of snow and ice was interrupted by sharp-toothed mountains like black shapes against a turquoise sky. This gave the runway its name, Wolfsfang. I was told that they were high mountains, but in this fathomless expanse, the scale was impossible to judge. Were they huge peaks or mere ridges that one could scamper up in an hour or so? In Antarctica, there were no points of reference. No one owns this vast continent. There's no passport control when you arrive, no immigration regulations, no border post. 
in a gentlemanly fashion the various nations recognise one another's territorial claims, there are seven in all, in spite of the fact that they're often overlapping and have no legal status. Antarctica is the only place on earth where you're not in any entity, where you are officially nowhere. The history is fairly tenuous. For millennia, Antarctica remained undiscovered, though people seemed to sense it was there long before anyone had seen it. Even ancient Greek scholars spoke of a mysterious southern continent. Some enthusiasts were convinced it would be a fair land of happy people and fertile fields, an idea fortunately abandoned by the time it was first sighted from the crow's nest of a flagship just 200 years ago in January 1820. Since then, it's largely been a story of explorers and madmen, chaps with frozen beards and thousand-yard stares. In the empty spaces of Antarctica, they gather round like ghosts. A little more than a century ago, this was still the great unknown, the final blank on the world's map. As such, it drew men heartbroken at having missed out on dengue fever in the sodden jungles of Borneo, or spear runes in the scramble for Africa. Shackleton, who was perhaps the most prominent of Antarctic explorers, said it was the last great journey left to man. And of course, for some, it would be their last journey. When Apsley Cherry Gerard, one of the survivors of Robert Scott's ill-fated expedition, published his memoir in 1922, the title came easily. He called it the worst journey in the world. But Antarctica is never just a journey. It's in the nature of this remarkable place that traversing it is always about something more than the challenges of its geography. Shackleton admitted that the continent had become a metaphor for him and for others. We all have our own white south, he, he would say, alluding to the idea of a quest for meaning. All these adventurers would be obsessed by their time here in the white south for the rest of their lives. It was where they'd felt most vividly alive, Years later, sitting in the window of his library, reading his notebooks as an English afternoon faded across his lawns, Cherry Gerard wrote a note in the margins. Can we ever forget those days? I should really have been hunkered down inside several sleeping bags, blizzards battering the tent while the dogs howled outside and my hot water bottle froze, but I confess I wasn't. The Antarctic... A tour operator, white desert, founded by some modern-day Antarctic travellers, has created trips that take the hardship out of discovery. Its base, which away camp, in the remote spaces of Queen Maud Land in the east, must count as one of the most exclusive stays in the world. The logistics that support it would test a space mission. The camp consists of seven insulated circular pods bound to the earth in case of sudden storms and set apart from one another across one of the few swathes of exposed rock. It looked like the set for a sci-fi film, a, a human colony stranded on an alien planet. There are six larger domes, three of which make for a spacious shared area with fur throws and a library of books. Cherry Gerard would have snorted with disgust at such indulgence. Crucially, as much thought has gone into the environmental impact at which way as its comfort. Antarctica is ground zero for climate change. It's home to 90% of the world's ice, 
yet its, its temperatures are rising faster than almost anywhere else on Earth. A rise of over 10 degrees Fahrenheit since the 1950s. Should these trends actually continue, the effect on global sea levels will be disastrous. The continent's vulnerability demands respect from those who operate here. White Desert offsets its flights with accredited carbon neutral schemes. It's pioneered a solar powered system for heat and water, and this year expects to eliminate single use plastics from its supply chain. All waste is shipped out to be recycled or disposed of responsibly in South Africa. Finally, when the camp's lifespan reaches a natural end, it will be removed without a trace. Which way offers a unique experience? The conventional way to reach the southern continent is on a polar cruise, going ashore via zodiac boats and regimented excursions in order to see penguins, seals, and other sea life. More than 50,000 people a year visit Antarctica this way. However, only 160 stay at Wichaway Camp each season, bedding down on the landmass itself. In a small group of five, we took trips on foot in the Camp 6x6 truck and in White Desert's Bassler BT-67 planes, which acted as our flying taxis to more distant parts. It felt like a rare privilege. In those summer months, it was never dark. Antarctica was luminous with 24-hour daylight, a neutral canvas that had been painted with rays as the sun gravitated round the sky. The pale milky blue, the rose-tinted mornings, the crisp white of midday, the cryocyanite holes with the exquisite lacework of crystals and air bubbles created by dust or rock pieces trapped in the ice. A section of the cliff broke away on the far side of the lake and fell with a sound like thunder, shattering the delicate silence. We climbed over a steep shoulder of snow to a sloping expanse that rose towards the skyline. Leaning into the slope, using ropes now, we felt tiny, against the magnitude of this place. On the ridge line, we left our crampons in the lee of some rocks and clambered up a nunatek, a stony peak protruding from the glacier. From the summit, we looked out across that bright, silent stillness. Stretches of snow and ice sloped away into fathomless distances without the interruption of a single alien features bar our own footprints below. This must be what infinity looks like, I thought. No one lives in Antarctica. Even the hardy souls who overwinter in scientific research stations are really only visitors. But it's not just human inhabitants that are missing. Life of any kind is scarce, and what does exist is often a little strange. No trees or shrubs grow here. Flora is limited to lichen, moss, and algae. The largest land animal that permanently occupies Antarctica is a wingless midge, which grows to just half an inch. The chief birds include snow petrels and skuas. The snow petrels feed mainly on fish, while the large gull-like skuas feed on the chicks of the petrels. The nests are surrounded by graveyards of bleached bones. Skuas lay two eggs, 
so that one of their chicks in this land of spare resources can be fed to the other. In startling contrast with the land, the surrounding seas are teeming with life, supported by shrimp-like krill, the bases of the marine food chain here, which has at an estimated 500 million tons, the largest biomass of any animal species on the planet. Numerous whales arrive in the Southern Ocean to feed, including blue whales, the, the Earth's largest creature. There are also southern elephant seals, Antarctic fur seals and leopard seals, among others. Finally, and most famously, there are the, the emperor penguins, who feed at sea, but breed on land or ice. Everyone seems to watch the saga of the heroic male emperor penguin nursing a simple egg through the gales of winter while the females depart in search of food. Near Numer Research Station we visited a penguin rookery a few miles inland away from the threat of the leopard seals. As we approached the gathered birds sounded like a chicken coop. A chorus of squawking and squeaking rose from the cold assembly. In a society where everyone has turned up in the same dinner jacket Voices are important. Individuals locate one another by vocalization. Midwinter in a howling gale, these emperor penguins are all fearless grit and cold flippers. But in this season, mid-summer, the group felt pleasantly aimless, even idle. They were just hanging out as if at a garden party, natalie dressed, shuffling their feet, making small talk, waiting for the drinks tray to come round again. Occasionally one flops down for, for a bit of ice surfing before slowly getting to his feet again. The youngsters, fluffy and possibly cute, have the gleeful look of children allowed to stay up past their bedtime for grown-up gathering. David Attenborough has called the life of the Emperor Penguin one of nature's greatest acts of survival, as well as one of its most romantic love stories. This emperor society is kindly and generous. It's, it's primarily about happy families. Down on the coast, male elephant seals are tearing each other's throats out before mating with every female they can lay their flippers on. But male emperors are sensitive fellows, loyal to their wives, eager to share childcare. They coo affectionately at their spouses who coo back, then both coo at their single child. From time to time, one of the parents starts to gag, then leaves over and vomits fish into the little one's waiting mouth. Even this is managed with decorum. Another day, we went to the seaside. The Southern Ocean was frozen solid. For 60 miles or more, a rumpled apron of, of sea ice stretched outward from the shore to the open water. It's not a flat ice sheet, but a tumultuous upheaval of colossal rock-solid waves, most taller than a man. Sunlight raked over their shoulders like liquid silver. In the troughs between them lay shadows of watery blue. Standing there on the edge of the ocean, I felt in awe of this place, of its scale, of its splendor, of its beauty. And with that all, my own life, with all its anxieties and issues, its minor triumphs and rather less minor failures, its pain and its hurts, shrank away. It was a wonderful feeling, the amazement and the accompanying loss of self, as profound as meditation. It was liberating. In that sparkling moment, 
in the crystal air of Antarctica, I thought there could be no better journey, no better destination than this exhilarating feeling of liberation, even when it means going to the end of the earth in order to find it. We hope you enjoyed our Escape Routes podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us in the charts and ensure you are the first to hear about new episodes.